God calls His children uh, uh, a lot of things as an analogy. For example, He he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And that's a marvelous, uh, there's a marvelous picture in that, truth in that statement. I am the vine, you are the branches. And the life of the vine comes through um, through itself out into the branches and we draw our life from Him. I am the groom and you are the bride. And there's a beautiful picture there of the uh, intimate relationship that God has with His church. I am the shepherd and you are the sheep. That's an interesting uh, analogy. As a matter of fact, it's, it's intriguing because the characteristic of a sheep is that he is ignorant and uh, helpless and weak and is constantly losing his way. And so when he says, I am the shepherd and you are the sheep, you get the picture that the sheep are totally uh, dependent upon the shepherd for life and the sheep are ignorant and weak and helpless and always in trouble. And it seems kind of a paradox when he begins to talk, or the scripture begins to talk about the sheep being conquerors. You know where that's found, don't you? If you'll turn to the 8th chapter of Romans and just keep your place in Acts 5, we're going to see something that seems almost a paradox. It seems like a contradiction that that he would call sheep more than conquerors or overwhelming conquerors. But in verse 36 of chapter 8, Romans, these words, For thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We, are, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now really, if you're going to um, uh, pick a mascot uh, that is to convey the idea of victory and strength and power and courage, would you ever choose a sheep? I mean, I mean really, can you picture yourself as being uh, uh, playing for the Durant sheep? You know, I just can't, I can't imagine that. Now, are the are southeastern, southeastern, southeastern sheep, I can, I can see... Um, lions and tigers and cougars and bears and even savages. But the idea that, that you've got strength and power and sufficiency in sheep just doesn't fit, does it? And so when he talks about overwhelmingly conquerors, he is indicating to us that if, God, if we conquer, God's going to have to do it. God's going to have to pull it off. And the best analogy for God's people as sheep is, is that, we are, that we're sheep who overwhelmingly conquer, which suggests that if the victory is ever won, it'll have to be that God pulls it off. And God just seems to be saying to us, you can be yourself and you can be natural and you can be real and you can be just who you are and I'm going to give you power to conquer. In fact, I'm going to win through you. And I'm going to give outside of yourself and outside of your native ability and your innate nature, I'm going to give you power that is 
that is sufficient for anything you encounter. You are going to overwhelmingly conquer, but it will not be because of your ability, your strength. I'm going to pull it off for you. And I was doing my daily, uh, my quiet time reading and trying to do a little memorization. I found this marvelous verse in Proverbs 21, verse 31, Living Bible. It says, Go ahead and prepare for the conflict, but God gives the victory. And you can get ready and you do all that's necessary to, to be sufficient and adequate when the time comes for the difficulties that you're going to face. But you just remember that if you get victory, if you conquer, it'll be because God enables you. And if you win, it'll be because He pulls it off. That's a marvelous, marvelous thought and truth and word. In fact, the greatest word maybe in the New Testament is that promise of Jesus, that word of Christ. Now, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so tonight what we're going to look at in the fifth chapter of the book of Acts is just the running account, the chronological account of the church as it conquered there against overwhelming odds and not because of anything which they possessed. And we'll just look at these in the various places where they conquered. And just kind of running down the, uh, the passages, you just look at verse 12, they conquered at Solomon's portico, Solomon's porch. And verse 18, they conquered in jail. And they were overwhelming conquerors in the temple in verse 21 and verse 27 before the council. And then in verse 22, from house to house, out in the street, I mean in every area of life, they were more than conquerors. And you go back with me now and we'll take verse 12 and look at Solomon's portico and Solomon's porch. And at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. That was the porch area around the temple outside. It was kind of a, uh, just the porch, the vestibule of the temple. And, uh, but none, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. Let me say parenthetically here, young people. It may be true that when you're a Christian, if you really live a dynamic Christian life, it's probably true that you're not going to have your, your peers' popularity. You may not be popular with them, but you will have their respect. They may not like you, but they will respect you. And that's what this verse says, that none of the rest of the people would dare associate with them. I wouldn't be caught dead with those Christian people, those fanatics. But then he says, they, were, they held them in high esteem. They couldn't help but respect them. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and they laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And also the people from the cities of the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Um, what happens when your shadow falls upon someone? Does it hurt them or does it heal them? 
And so they came bringing the sick, and they just had them out in the streets, hoping that somehow uh, Peter's shadow might fall on them, and they'd be healed. Now, I don't understand all that's involved in that. And if you read this passage in some commentary, they'll say that there was a kind of a superstition in that time that, that the shadow of these divine holy men had healing power in itself. But the thing that I notice about this passage is that the church had power that the church desperately desires and needs. And it seems to me that the church powerful is the church that's pure. For when did this begin to happen, that the church had this power to do signs and wonders so that all they had to do was bring uh, people and let them stand in the shadows of these disciples, particularly Simon Peter? It was after... Christ, after God had purified the church in the experience of Ananias and Sapphira. When God dealt with the hypocrisy in the church and God cleansed the church, the church had power. Let me just uh, say something that you and I already know without a question, without a doubt, is that the church is never going to have that kind of power until the church is pure of its sin until we begin to deal with the sin in our life. Any church that has, that has its membership who are, who are guilty of, of allowing sin an uncontested place is impotent in its power. The church that is pure is the church that is... The church that is powerful is the church that is pure. And the church that is pure is the church that's spirit-filled. For God will fill everything you and I will empty. If, any, if a person will come to God, any, any, any one of us, and we'll empty our lives of that which does not please Him, God will fill everything that's empty, that we'll empty. And so Jesus talked about living water. And He said, um, Out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. You know what living water is? Living water is, is, is water that is not stagnant. And I've tried to uh, picture what it means to fill something. You take a glass and fill it up with water, and we talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not, that's, not being, that's not filled with living water. You know how to fill a glass with living water? You knock the bottom out of it. And you just put that glass with, uh, you know, beside the stream, beside the river flow, and it'll fill that glass with living water. You know how to, you know for how to have a church that's so powerful that people can just bring others into the presence of the healing, redemptive power of that church. You let the church empty itself of all the things that are barriers to the work of the Holy Spirit. That church will be filled with living water. So they were powerful in Solomon's portico. Well, look at verse 18 or 17. But the high priest rose up along with the associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy, and they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison... And taking them out, he said, Go your way and stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Now in every one of these impossible situations that the church found itself in, God just intervenes. And somehow He made these uh, 
imprisoned disciples, invisible, and He just opened the gates and out they came. For when the Lord does something, it defies explanation. Um, don't, don't try to explain what is happening when the church experiences revival. It defies explanation. I alluded this morning to, to this revival that's taking place. I've been hearing a little bit about it. It's happening over in the county um, north of us over here. Have you heard something about that? Shake your head up and down if you have. Um, over in Atoka and in that part of the country, there's a, there's a revival taking place. And there's a guy, a, South, a, 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 a person from Africa, a, a Ghanaian, a black man, who is preaching over there, and God just seems to be blessing the word he's preaching. And, and, and marvelous things are happening in that part of the country. And everybody's trying to explain it, you know, what's happening. And, uh, and you've, got, you've got some of us who are a little bit more conservative in our theology and some of us who are a little bit suspicious of those things and we've got our explanation for it. And there are others who have their explanation for what's happening in this, this kind of a thing that's stirring in our part of the country. But let me tell you something. When God goes to work, it defies explanation. You might as well quit trying to explain it. There's no way to explain it. And it seems to me that what... What we, what, we, what we desire to see happen in the church is something we can't explain. So that when we come together on Sundays, there is a movement here that is, that is not restricted by man. And there is a work of God that takes place that's awesome and mystical and defies explanation. I want that to happen, don't you? Something supernatural and divine. You ever listen to Ben Hayden on your way home from church on Sunday night? He comes on uh, one of the Dallas stations. He's a Presbyterian preacher out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. has a marvelous radio ministry, and he's a great preacher. In fact, he speaks in Washington. He speaks to the, to the, uh, to the leaders of the nation. He is well respected. Someone was telling the other day that, that in a service about a month ago, Ben Hayden was preaching. And it came up a terrible thunderstorm right in the church service. And after the service was over, um, it was such a torrential downpour that the people couldn't go to, from the church out to get their automobiles. And so they came back through the church and went into a little uh, um, entranceway out to the side where cars could come up and get the people. And people were lined up there in the halls waiting for the, their automobile, their transportation. Ben Hayden was coming down the hall of this church. This has happened about a month ago, and he said, I never do this. I don't talk to people after church. I usually go into my office and, and get my um, coat and, and go on home and, uh, I'm, uh, and relax. He said, I, but I, I walked out into this vestibule area, and he said, I saw this woman standing over against the wall. And he said, I'd never seen her before, total stranger. He said, I, I never do this. He said, I looked at her and I pointed at her. I want to see you. And she said, when? And I said, tomorrow at 10 o'clock in my office. He said, I never do that. And he said, the next morning, Monday morning at 10 o'clock, that woman was in his office. And he said, I sat down with her and he said, now I want to apologize for what I did yesterday. He said, I don't know why I said what I said. I don't know why I did what I did. I just... I just did that. I don't ever do that. And she said, well, I had a question in my, when I came today. I, I was going to ask you why you did that, why you said that to me. Then she said, for I had determined in the service when I came to church 
that I was going home today, take my life. And he said, when you said that, when you looked at me, somebody, some voice came to me and said, there's hope for you, there's hope for you. And he said, there in my study, I opened up the scripture and I led that woman to faith in Christ and now she's a dynamic witness in our church. I tell you, that defies explanation. And you find people like these disciples and they're imprisoned. And all of a sudden, in the night, the angel comes and makes them invisible. And they just walk out while guards are standing, posted, and nobody sees them. But the Scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, has been tried by fire and is true every word of it. It happened. It defies explanation. They're conquerors in jail. And they are conquerors in the temple. Look at verse 21. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates had come together, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. They sent down to the prison to get them out. And they were over in church. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. And they returned and reported back saying, We found the prison house locked securely and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. That's, I, I, just, I want to grin when I... It's just absolutely comical. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these things, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. That's the understatement. But someone came and reported to them, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid what the people would say. They were in the temple preaching, teaching. Now the opposition that comes to the people of God does not always take place out in the, um, out in the street in the jail. Sometimes the greatest barriers to overcome are the barriers that are established within the church itself. Have you ever noticed that? Some of the greatest hindrance, I think, to preaching the gospel sometimes takes place right in the church itself. And some of the restrictions on the Holy Spirit are placed not by His enemies outside the church, but His friends inside the church. Those restrictions are so difficult to overcome. And that's true in a kind of a uh, cold and formal religion. Um, I like Ann Kempler's book. I love the word, this is the title of the book, I, Lo- I Love the Word Impossible. In this book she has this little comment. Listen to this. Recently I was in a beauty shop having my hair trimmed. It was crowded, every sink and dry hair dryer filled with women waiting. that sound familiar? I've never uh, had that experience, but... The man cutting my hair looked up and said, Did you all know this girl is the dean of women up at the college? One lady lifted her hair dryer and said, I don't believe it. She's too young. Got to be old to be a dean out at the college, right? Oh, no, I, I said, I have a giant of a God in me. He and I do pretty well, I laughed. This is beauty shop talk. Another woman looked out from under her hair dryer. Are you a Jesus freak? A Jesus freak? No, not exactly, but Jesus is the Lord of my life. He's my friend. He laughs and cries with me. 
And there in the beauty shop on an ordinary afternoon was a brief Jesus rap session. The next morning, while sitting behind my desk, the phone rang. Is this Ann? You don't know me, but I was one of the ladies in the beauty shop yesterday. I'm the mother of four little girls. I'm a Catholic, and I have never heard anyone talk about Jesus the way you did. Could you tell me how to find Him? I want my children to know Him like that, too. So from one suburb to another, with a woman I didn't even know, I shared Jesus. You know how, you know how to conquer in the church? The way, the, the way that we conquer in the church is not necessarily, you know, having the right kind of art or service and program. The way we conquer in the church is just to begin to talk about Jesus like we know Him personally. And I'm convinced, I'm absolutely certain of this fact, that there are scores and scores of people who go to church every Sunday who are just longing to talk about Jesus and know about Him and just, and just have a little fellowship with Him. And they conquered in the council. Look at verse 27. I'm not going to read that, but I'm, I sure know this, that when the, sheep, when the sheep of God get cornered, God steps in to provide for them. Now, who is this Gamaliel? This Gamaliel is Paul's mentor. He's a rabbi, a keen attorney. And he steps up and, 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 and intervenes and he said, if these men are not of God, they won't, get a, you know, they won't get a motion to their second. They won't get a second to their motion. But he said, if these men are of God, you better not touch them. And he intervened. And it's a, very, it's a proven fact, ladies and gentlemen, that the Lord, when you get in tight, the Lord will use the most unusual instruments to get you out. Some of you have read David Redding's book. David Redding, is a, he's written several commentaries, marvelous book on the parables. David Redding was a Presbyterian minister out in, out in, in, in Hollywood, California. In his church, one of the most unique churches, when he was pastoring in the, on the West Coast, he had a boy, he had two guys named Boozer and Smiley. And Boozer and Smiley fit just their names. Boozer and Smiley. Boozer and Smiley came right off the streets and found the Lord and got active in David Redding's church. Boozer and Smiley were, you know, just, you know, they weren't your usual cut, you know, the usual run of the mill. And they had a guy they led to Christ, kind of a strange street man by the name of Johann Oxum. And David Redding said Johann Oxum was a junkie that Boozer and Smiley won to the Lord. And he was a marvelous musician. And somebody who was there one night in David Redding's church said Johann Oxum was uh, asked, to, asked to, to play and sing. And he got his piano. This man with a long beard right off the streets, a converted junkie who graduated from high school at the age of 38, began to play his guitar and sing. And the last song he played, everybody sang, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. 
Isn't it amazing that God uses the most unusual instruments to conquer? Oh, that's a good word. There's not a superstar in this church. I mean, not a one of them. And if you will sometimes study the lives of the twelve disciples, there's not a one of them you would have chosen to be the leader of your church unless it was Judas. He was the only one really qualified to be chosen to be one of the, one of, one of the leaders of the church, Judas Iscariot. There wasn't a superstar in the crowd. And yet God raised up these men, these unusual instruments like Boozer and Smiley and Simon Peter and John and Gerald Tidwell and conquers with them. And there's a good word for this church because every one of us tonight, God using, can do a mighty work. And so they told these men, you better keep quiet. And this is what they said. You must obey. We must obey God rather than men. Now let me give you a little exercise in good Bible study. You know how to do some real good Bible study. Just take a verse of Scripture and emphasize every word. And I want to do that with you. We must obey God. I just want to take that phrase. I want us to reverse it. And we'll emphasize each word in that one phrase. You do it with me, okay? We must obey God. There is, a, there is a supreme authority in this world. There is a sovereign authority in this world. There is a, there is a pole star. His name is God. Somebody was in my office the other day and we were talking about some of the... Uh, some of the teaching now that, that's going around where uh, you know, the wife is to obey her husband. If he tells her she can't go to church or can't worship God, she's to be able to submissive and obey him. That's a bunch of garbage. We are to obey God rather than man. There is a supreme authority who is to be the sovereign of life. His name is Yahweh, Elohim. His name is Jehovah. His name is God. All right, let's emphasize the next word coming back. We must obey. And that word means absolute and total unequivocal obedience and submission. He didn't say to, to, uh, to rationalize Him or to explain Him or to study Him. He didn't say develop uh, ideas and theologies concerning Him. He said we must obey Him. Cannons to the right of them, cannons to the left, cannons in front of them, volleyed and thundered. Boldly they rode and well into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell. There's not to reason why, there's not to make reply. There's but to do or die, do and die. And we must obey Him. If God says this is what we're to do, that's what we're to do. We, there's no question about it. We obey. Let's move back. We must now, if I said to you, I ought to, you might turn me off. That creates interest, but you might, you know, you, you turn me off. I ought to do this. It's not a matter of an option. We must. It's a divine imperative. And then we, they didn't ask anybody else to assume their responsibility. They took it themselves and they said, we must obey God. Now, let me tell you something. There's not going to be any conquering done anywhere where people are not willing to obey God. 
The opposite of faith is disobedience, is rebellion. And the opposite of rebellion is obedience. And I just challenge you sometime. You look, you just go through the times in the New Testament where the word faith can be interchanged with the word obedience. Faith and obedience are counterparts. They're basically one and the same. And there is no conquering without faith. There is no conquering without obedience. Now let me give you the application that I'm through. The application is this, two ideas right at the bottom. First, opposition may mean that we are in the will of God. Opposition may mean that we are in the will of God. Sometimes I think that we, we, we measure whether or not we're in the will of God by the opposition. We say, well, there's too much opposition. We must not be in the will of God. Sometimes opposition may mean we are in the will of God. Secondly, determination means that we may have to stand against man's opposition rather than with them. Determination means that we may have to stand against man's opposition. It may mean that one day you and I, young people, will have to stand alone and nobody else stands with us. But we must obey God. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight first of all, to search our heart and to see if there's any wicked way within us, creating us a clean heart, renew a right spirit within us. And help us to realize that we are like sheep, helpless and weak, but that you make us to be more than conquerors. When we are cleansed, pure, yielded, submissive, and obedient. Bring us to that place of obedience and submission now, Father, to Your will, whatever that will would be, in Christ's name. Our invitations tonight are three. Invitation to come and receive Christ as your personal Savior. To invite Him into your heart and life, to receive Him as your Savior and Lord. The second invitation is to be obedient to the will of God for you concerning your church membership. Have you asked God where He wants you to place your life? Or to come tonight to say, I have been a disobedient Christian, a disobedient child. I brought heartache to the Father. I want to come to rededicate myself to Him. We're going to sing, Wherever He leads I'll go. We'll sing one stanza, If No One Should Come. That'll be the only stanza we'll sing. Would you come and we stand, sing together?